produced by WBUR and the Boston Globe. The Guiding Museum robbery was so easy. So I wonder there wasn't a tsunami of burglars coming in and doing it. So that's when I suggested to him, you know, if you could steal a few million dollars worth of art and just put it away, then if you get popped, you can, you know, wheel and deal it at that point. And then finally using force, they pull it off here. That's a lot of effort. Yeah. Okay, so the coup is not a random It's not a random piece. Grab. Wow. Why did the Gardner thieves take those 13 pieces? The answer to that question could tell us so much. Two in particular seem to make no sense. The 12th century Chinese coup and the bronze eagle finial. They're not even one of a kind. The museum's former director told us she always thought of them as trophy steals. But trophies for whom? As it turns out, maybe this guy. Back then there was a tree where you climb the tree and overlook and see into the gardener, get the routine of the guards and uh, that sort of thing. At 73 years old, Miles Connor Jr. isn't climbing trees anymore. But as a young man, he studied martial arts. He was the kind of thief who could, and did, shimmy up a drain pipe in order to rob a museum. Connor wanted to rob the Gardner Museum. He says he would have gone for the Vermeer and the Rembrandts and his plan for doing it looks an awful lot like what actually happened. And so I figured, I knew that the paintings were uninsured, and I knew they would do anything to get their paintings back, and so it made sense that they would come up with a substantial reward for a return of those things, and that, that was my plan for the gardener. Steal the art, ransom it back. Miles Connor says he started casing the Gardner Museum in 1975, a full 15 years before the heist. And as he walked the galleries back then, he says he wasn't alone. He was with another art thief, a guy named Bobby. Not a Bobby we've told you about, though. His name was Bobby Donati. Bobby was a typical Italian crook. I wouldn't call him a mobster, because mobsters are what you associate with organized crime. He wasn't that kind of a crook. His specialty, it was rugs, oriental rugs. That's what he used to steal, deal with, and uh, collect. Connor and Donati had eclectic taste. Lucky for them, the gardener has an eclectic collection. So after setting their minds on the museum's Dutch masterpieces, which Connor says they intended to ransom back for the reward, they window-shopped for a little something nice for themselves. When Bobby and I had gone through the Bugatti, for some reason, he was attracted to the finial. He said, I like that. And sure enough, it was taken. Then there was a bronze. Didn't they take a Chinese bronze or urn? Connor is referring to the coup. He's a self-taught aficionado of Asian art. That was something that I liked. I'm embarrassed to say. <laughs> I should have never admitted that. But I, I, I'm, I'm damn sure he took that because uh, 
I, I told him that I liked it. He liked the pinning lights, and I liked that thing. Did Bobby Donati wind up with that finial? Were Bobby Donati and Miles Connor responsible for the heist? We put the question to the Gardner Museum's head of security, Anthony Amore. You know, I don't like to speculate about who, who did it, where they are, but there are things I will throw out there. And one of my beliefs is that it's likely that Miles Connor was the inspiration for the heist. Right, because it's hard to believe he wouldn't be, given how prolific he was in the decades leading up to it. Amore describes Connor as the world's greatest art thief. If anyone did, Connor wrote the playbook for how to steal a Rembrandt and, more important, what to do with it once you have it. The question is, was Miles Connor more than just the inspiration for the Gardner heist? Was he the mastermind? From WBUR Boston and the Boston Globe, this is Last Scene. I'm Kelly Horan. And I'm Jack Rodoligo. This is Episode 7, I Was the One. Miles Connor was born in Milton, Massachusetts, a comfortable Boston suburb. His family stretches back to both sides of the city's oldest class divide, blue collar and blue blood. My father was a Milton police officer. My mother was a daughter of the Mayflower. By the way, Connor slurs his words a little, the result of a major heart attack he suffered a few years ago. He traces his lineage on his mother's side to a founder of the Hudson River School of Artists. He traces his criminality to his paternal grandfather, who fled Ireland after he shot a constable. He says the first museum he ever robbed was an act of revenge in the name of his father. Here's what happened. A small museum in his hometown accused Connor's father, the cop, of stealing from them, something his dad would never do. So my father, who was as honest as honest could be, and uh, he said, can you believe that? These uh, wasps, sons of bitches, uh, you know, I've never been so insulted in my life. And so... Uh, I picked up on this. And by picked up on this, Connor means he got even. He snuck into the museum at night and took enough antiques to fill the trunk of his car. He gave the museum just enough time to panic before all of it showed back up on their front lawn. The stuff was mysteriously returned to the museum. (laughs) This sort of I-can-do-anything-at-any-time attitude It stems from the fact that Connor pretty much could have done anything with his life. Before he became the best at a bad thing, he had the option of becoming really good at good things. Connor was an exceptionally bright kid. He says he was offered a spot at Harvard where he would have studied to become a surgeon. That is a a turn in my life that I regret. Looking back at it, I think I would have been a better surgeon than I was an artist. But he didn't give up on being a surgeon so he could be a thief. He rejected college to pursue another passion altogether. A lot of these tunes we haven't rehearsed, but we'll give it a try. Miles Connor was a rock star. 
Here he is on stage at a place called the Beachcomber in Quincy, Massachusetts in 1978. Let me tell my story. I can tell it all about a mountain boy, illegal alcohol. His daddy made the whiskey, his son he ran the load. And when his engine would explode, they called Highway Thunder Road, and it was thunder, thunder. His band was called Miles Connor and the Wild Ones. He headlined clubs around Boston and opened for big names like Roy Orbison and Chuck Berry. He was a five-foot, two-inch frontman with a leather jacket and fiery red hair. Sometimes he drove his motorcycle right on stage. And he could impersonate rock legends. A local chain of gas stations hired him to record their commercials where he'd imitate his heroes. Here's one from 1963. You know, if Elvis Presley would have driven to a Bay State gas station, he'd sound something like this. Oh, if you love you, Bay State. Oh, yes, we do. Oh, we love you, Bay State. Oh, because you're a gas. Connor's music career was bound to suffer as crime took up more and more of his time. Martin Lepo is the defense attorney who's represented seven different men who have been named in connection to the Gardner investigation. Miles Connor is one of them. Uh, have I been out socially with Miles? Absolutely. Has he been to my house? Absolutely. Has my wife cooked dinner for him? Absolutely. Did I write to him while he was in jail? Absolutely. Did I defend his honor and certain things? Absolutely. Uh, do I think he's a criminal? Absolutely but a very bright criminal. And if he had done things the right way, he'd probably be some famous surgeon or politician. Connor was a Renaissance criminal. He'd kidnap drug dealers, stick up banks, sell cocaine, you name it. And he doesn't exactly look back on all his crimes with remorse. Get picked up with about $100,000 cash on me. <laughs> so I, but it was on my cash. Bang, I hit the guy. <laughs> so he goes down. <laughs> now fight breaks up. It's all of them against me. It's the entire goddamn football team. He was taken down Quailus from Canada. He was making around 20000 bucks a week. And so the guy says, I know who you are. I says, I don't think so. I don't know you. Oh, yes, you do. You little fucking punk, you motherfucker. The lamb. I label him right across the top of his skull. The shotgun goes off. <laughs> Shoots himself right in the balls. So we're all stunned. <laughs> oh, I shot myself. Could not have happened to a more deserving individual. <laughs> the crime Connor is best known for, though, is stealing art. And he says the question of who he would and wouldn't steal from was all down to a personal code, a kind of thief's honor system. Take the time he posed as a well-dressed gentleman and talked his way into the storage area of a museum with vast holdings of Asian antiquities. Connor says he could have cleaned them out. But I recognized the deep sense of affection towards the stuff that they that they had and uh, it was that sense of appreciation that uh, kept me from uh, violating the trust that they, they had Connor felt no such compunction about the prospect of stealing from the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum 
they were going to get the paintings back. I was going to get money. And so there was no harm done other than to the insurance company or the billionaire patrons. Miles Connor isn't just smart. He claims membership in Mensa, the high IQ society. And his genius is best on display when he is getting himself into and out of trouble. That's his art. And it was a crime spree in the mid-1970s that solidified his reputation as someone who could outfox law enforcement. When you steal something from a major museum and you don't take it out of storage and it's going to be missed, then the major purpose is uh, to use that as bargaining chip to help either oneself or somebody else out of a jackpot. Here's how Connor got himself into what he calls a jackpot. In 1974, Connor says his old buddy who liked antique rugs, Bobby Donati, approached him about an estate he wanted to rob in Maine. It was owned by the Woolworth family, who had a private collection that rivaled an art museum. I was not in the business of stealing some private collection from somebody who had a deep attachment to it. But somebody... uh, who had as much money as those folks had and uh, could go away for half a year at a time, that really didn't bother me. So I went along with Bobby. For a leisurely hour in the middle of a warm summer night, Connor and three other men, including, he says, Donati and a guy named David Houghton, combed through the empty mansion. They filled a panel truck with two Simon Willard grandfather clocks, two paintings by Andrew Wyeth, and three more by his father, N.C. Wyeth. One was an illustration the elder Wyeth had painted for the original cover of the book Treasure Island. Connor says he stashed it all and waited weeks for Bobby Donati to announce he had found a buyer for the paintings. Connor met up with that buyer on Cape Cod. I ended up taking the paintings down there and met these FBI agents. That was a sting operation, and I get arrested uh, Uh, for interstate transportation of stolen goods. Connor was staring at a long prison sentence, possibly 10 years for trafficking the art, three more for violating parole. He was 31 years old. For the FBI, arresting Connor red-handed, that was the jackpot, because he'd always managed to get away. Like the time he was on the lam when his mother died, Martin Lepo says Connor knew the police would stake out the funeral home looking for him, and he was determined to see his mother one last time. He actually rented a hearse, got into a coffin, transported to the funeral parlor, got out, kissed his mother goodbye, got back in the coffin, into the vehicle, and left. Which brings us back to that parking lot in Cape Cod, where Connor was nabbed with the five stolen Wyeth paintings. The FBI had him. He knew it. They knew it. And, according to Connor, the agent who arrested him rubbed it in his face. And he said, uh, look at you now, Connors. <laughs> It'll take a Rembrandt to get out of this. I said, you know, you're right. And so then I set my heart on getting a Rembrandt.
The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me on point for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future, five special episodes. Listen and follow On Point wherever you get your podcasts. Miles Connor, out of jail and awaiting trial for trafficking the stolen Wyeths, heeded the Rembrandt advice. He just had to find one. He settled on one that was on loan to the Museum of Fine Arts Boston, Portrait of Elizabeth Van Rijn, Rembrandt's sister. At the time, 1975, it was said to be worth upwards of a million dollars. That particular painting was on near the back entrance to the place, so you could get a quick access and a quick egress. Connor hatched a broad daylight robbery, this posed a few problems, not least of which was Connor's budding notoriety as an art thief. His name was all over the papers for the Wyeth arrest. Plus, that red hair. I believe I had a tan uh, trench coat, a wig and sunglasses. And I believe I also had a fake mustache. On a sleepy Monday, April 14, 1975, Connor launched what sounds like a paramilitary strike on Boston's MFA. Connor says there were three vehicles with eight armed men, one with a machine gun. Six men positioned themselves near the entrance while Connor and another thief, also disguised, bought admission tickets and walked up to the gallery on the second floor. They pulled the Rembrandt off the wall and ran. As the exit was made down the front steps, there was a phalanx of guards that came rushing down. Connor says as he ran through the turnstile with the painting, the corner of the portrait's frame jammed between the bars. It wouldn't budge. Connor was stuck. The guards closed in. An accomplice opened fire. And there was a guy with a machine gun. Brrr, let the machine gun go off. They went right back. The guards stood down. Connor, with the help of one of his men, pushed all of his weight against the turnstile. As he freed himself, the corner of the Rembrandt's frame cracked and splintered. The thieves ran with it to the van. One guard chased them. The guy would not let go of the painting. The guy ran up to the back of the van and latched onto the painting. Don't shoot the guard, Connor said. One of them smashed him in the head with the butt of a gun. The guard, a retired cop, collapsed in the street as they sped away with the Rembrandt. Imagine the pressure the Boston police and the FBI were under to catch the thieves who stole a Rembrandt in the middle of the day. The investigation dragged on for months without a break. But there was one person who knew exactly what happened. So when I woke up and found that it was gone, I knew right away, I said, that's what's been going on. He stole the damn Rembrandt. Al Dottley is Miles Connor's oldest and best friend. He is not a criminal. Dottley is a law-abiding music production manager. The two met as teenagers when Connor was a music legend in their neighborhood. 
at 15 years old, Dottily knocked on Connor's door and asked for a guitar lesson. Almost 60 years later, Dottily is still loyal to his friend, but that doesn't mean he understands his choices. You know, I was never scolding him, but I said, for Christ's sake, don't you ever stop. Of course, Connor didn't stop. And as crime derailed his music career, Dottily moved on with his own, producing bigger and bigger acts. He set up sound systems for Aretha Franklin, Dionne Warwick, the Dalai Lama, and Super Bowl halftime shows. I came off a plane. I was with Dionne Warwick, and we were walking off the plane. He had just been shot robbing a freaking bank a couple of weeks before, and he's in a, a wheelchair <laughs> with a cast on up to his, his hip, from the foot to the hip. I'm coming down, and I go, oh, my God. <laughs> Here's the kind of friend Al Dottily is. When Connor would go to prison, Dottily arranged concerts behind bars, Johnny Cash style, like in 1977, when he got blues legend James Cotton to perform with Connor in Walpole State Prison. Here's that recording. Never know how much I love you. Never know how much I care. But when you put your arms around me, I get a feeling that's so hard to bear. You give me fever. It was this friendship and loyalty that made Al Dottily the obvious person to shake down for information about the Boston MFA's missing Rembrandt. Boston police, the FBI, even insurance agents were knocking on his door. One evening, a black limousine pulled up. Out stepped a nightclub owner carrying a briefcase. He sits down and he goes, well, you know, the guys, the guys on the hill thought maybe Miles would consider letting us deal this Rembrandt that he seems to have absconded. The guys on the hill. That was the underworld euphemism for the dominant patriarchal crime family. And he takes the briefcase and he opens it up and it's jammed full of money. So I see that. He thinks it's going to jolt me to get something done. Well, that's about as close as I ever came to wetting my pants. So I went to Miles and I said, okay, this shit has to stop right now. This is it. Dottily had no idea where the Rembrandt was. No one knew that except for Miles Connor and a friend of his, a guy they referred to as Charlie, who didn't ask a lot of questions. In this case, it went under the bed of a friend of mine's grandmother. <laughs> so she, she never knew what was underneath her bed. There it stayed, safe and sound, safe and sound. Not so much for Connor. Less than two weeks after the Boston MFA heist, he was due in court for trafficking the Wyeth paintings. He skipped the trial, which made him a fugitive. Through the summer of 1975, Connor was in hiding until the FBI caught him again. But this time, Connor had his get-out-of-jail-free card, the Rembrandt. Except now that he was in prison, he couldn't deal that card himself. Plus, would the FBI play? FBI will say, no, we're not going to deal with that guy. Yeah, we don't care what we get. We are not going to deal with that guy. And so that is always the position of the FBI. So you simply go beyond the FBI. What, who, is beyond the FBI? From his jail cell, Connor started with an old friend of his father's, a state police major named John Regan. The major distinction between an FBI agent and a state police officer is a sense of humor. 
deliberately cutting out the FBI, Connor, through the state police, offered the federal prosecutor a deal. And they went to a federal prosecutor who wanted the publicity. And so she said, yeah, get the painting back. We'll do whatever he wants. And so uh, I negotiated the return from Child Street Jail. In a sense, that was the easy part. But for the prosecutor to reduce his sentence, Connor had to return the Rembrandt. To do that, he needed someone he could trust. Enter Al Dottley. Miles being Miles, he starts with all this cloak and dagger shit on how he wants it done. With use firecrackers, let them think they're machine guns. And I said, listen, listen, listen. I'll get this thing back to them. You're sitting here. I'm outside. It's going down my way. After the black limo left his driveway, Al Dottley was eager to see the Rembrandt returned. He reluctantly agreed to do it. I just wanted to see that picture of that Rembrandt on the front page of the Boston Globe saying it's been returned. So I could get rid of all those fools that were jumping in out of my, you know, the insurance agents and the FBI and, and, and quite honestly, the, the underworld and the mafia and, and all those people would have no more reason to be, to be looking for me um, if, in fact, it was returned. I have to say, you are a very tolerant friend. Yeah, yeah, tolerance. <laughs> There's some tolerance sprinkling a little stupidity um, and rock and roll. It's not a good, it's not a good uh, uh, match. Connor says he wrote two letters with instructions on how the handoff should go. A friendly prison guard hand-delivered them both, one to Charlie, who hid the painting, the other to Dottley. Connor wrote to his friend, This operation is vital and must be carried out successfully. No mob, no insurance men, no FBI or police, and no failure. No pressure. Make sure it goes smooth and make sure the right people were involved and the wrong people aren't listening. And plus, the, there's a sense of romance associated with the adventure. And so all of that plays into it. January 2nd, 1976 was a cold, clear Friday. From jail, Connor made the call that set his high-stakes scheme in motion. He called Dottley and said, Tonight is the night. Connor gave his friend a code name, Kevin. And I called Major Regan at his home, uh, and he answered, and I said, this is Kevin, and we're on. And I said, uh, get in your car and, and drive to um, the Pepsi distributor, which is down the street. There's a pay phone there. Pull up and wait for the phone to ring, and you'll get your next uh, marching order. It was just after 7 p.m. From a room at the Holiday Inn, Dottley called State Police Major Regan and gave him directions to the hotel. When Regan pulled in, Dottley was waiting for him in the shadows. He approached the car and used the code language Connor had given him. I was to say to John Regan, I'm, it's a nice night out tonight. He says, and the answer was going to be, yes, there's plenty of stars. So uh, I said, uh, yeah, it's a nice night out. I'm standing there. It's all in black with a freaking ski mask on <laughs> In the middle of... <laughs> so, okay, so I open the door and I get in back and, and this other gentleman's in the car, so I said, uh, IDs. And that's what I'm saying. You know, you're in pretty deep here now. The guy in the car with Major Regan was the federal prosecutor who had the power to let Connor off the hook in the Wyeth case. Dottley sent them across the street into a disco. Through his ski mask, he told them, 
to wait for the bartender to announce a phone call for a Paul Greeter. They went into the bar. A few minutes later, Charlie pulled up with a Rembrandt in his trunk. Miles had arranged. I had a, I had a photo. Um, Charlie had a photo. Um, and there was a photo of what's on the of back. Of the Rembrandt, okay. Well, it, the Rembrandt itself, but more as importantly and even more importantly, a bunch of numbers and things that were on the back. During any of this, did you have a moment to pause when you were holding this Rembrandt in your hands and kind of behold what it was? I, I, if you're asking me if the artistic uh, value of it ran through my veins, no, it didn't. Um, what ran through my veins is, holy shit, this thing's finally here, and hopefully soon it'll finally be gone. Dottily put the Rembrandt in the trunk of Major Regan's car. He bolted up three flights of stairs to his room at the Holiday Inn, and called the disco. And the bartender goes, is there a Paul Greedy here? I could hear him go, yeah, yeah, I'm right here, I'm right here. Um, so he takes the phone, and I said, okay, guys, you walk out the front of that lounge, walk, do not run. I said, if what you want is in that trunk, then turn, face the building, and put your hands in, into your belt. And earlier I said, nobody's armed, right? And they said, oh, no, nobody's armed. Um, so they, they open up the trunk and they're flashlighting all over the place. So they open their trench coats, they put their hands in there, and what I observed was I went, the sons of bitches, they both had guns stuck in there. The state cop and the prosecutor left with the painting. Dottily drove to the airport and flew straight to New York City for a gig. The next day, he picked up the paper. Read the New York Times. It wasn't on page one, but it was on page two. Um, and I was quite relieved. At a press conference announcing the return of the Rembrandt, the FBI was notably absent. Instead, the U.S. Attorney's Office and the state police proudly detailed the clandestine handoff. They stated plainly that they didn't make any deals in order to get the paintings back. But Miles Connor, who was facing 13 years in prison, only served 28 months. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. If Miles Connor could orchestrate the return of one Rembrandt from inside prison, wasn't it possible he could organize the theft of another? 
when the uh, gardener was hit, um, Miles became the number one suspect that he orchestrated and so forth and so on. Um, so that was number one. There was just one problem, as Martin Lepo recalls. On March 18, 1990, Connor was serving a long federal sentence for drug trafficking. He was in prison in Lompoc, California. So Miles Connor didn't rob the Gardner Museum. But he says he knows who did. His old friend and sometime criminal accomplice, Bobby Donati. He was a pragmatist, as far as being a thief goes. Uh, so if somebody wanted to uh, cut the paintings out of the frame, he'd do it. Remember, Connor says he and Donati cased the gardener together in the 1970s. The two had gone so far, Connor says, as to pick out what they'd steal. And Connor's feat with the Boston MFA's Rembrandt had shown the entire criminal world that stealing art, especially a Rembrandt, was not only possible, it could get you out of prison. Connor says Bobby Donati had an accomplice in the Gardner heist, David Houghton. How I'm 100% sure that they did it was because uh, David Houghton, who was a longtime friend of mine, he flew all the way from uh, Logan Airport to California. Just tell me, we've done it, we did it, and we got a bunch of paintings, and we're going to use a couple of these paintings to bargain you into a reduced sentence. If David Houghton were involved in the Gardner heist, he would have had to have been waiting outside. He weighed at least 300 pounds and bore no resemblance whatsoever to the police sketches of the thieves. What about Bobby Donati? Well, with his round face and dark features, maybe. But Connor is convinced that it was Donati and Houghton who stole the Rembrandts and the Vermeer as currency to spring him from prison. And the smaller items they took... So it sounds like the finial was a souvenir for Donati. Oh, beyond a doubt. The, the coup was maybe a gift for you? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm quite sure, yeah. If his friend took that coup as a gift for Connor, he says he never got it. That might be because Houghton and Donati died the year after the Gardner heist. Houghton had a heart attack. Donati was found brutally murdered in the trunk of his car. The Boston FBI has said they know who robbed the Gardner Museum and that the thieves are dead. They haven't identified them. That could mean that the secrets of the Gardner heist died with Donati and Houghton or with any of the other dead men whose names have been floated in connection with the robbery. Next week, one more dead suspect. His fingerprints were among the first sent to FBI headquarters after the heist. And some who knew him best believe he's still alive and that he did it. Read Steve Kirkton's reporter's notebook to learn about his theory 
that Bobby Donati robbed the gardener for another jailed criminal. And check out our reading list about the robbery and Isabella Stewart Gardner. That's all at WBUR.org slash last scene. If you have a tip, theory, or thought, call our tip line at 617-929-7999. Special thanks to Al Dottley for providing music recordings for this episode, including the song you're hearing now, I Was the One, performed by Miles Connor. Last Scene is a production of WBUR and the Boston Globe. Our consulting producer is Stephen Kirkchen. Production and sound design by John Parati. Eve Zukoff is our production assistant. Additional production by Catherine Brewer. Our digital team is Amy Gorell, Tiffany Campbell, Daigo Fujiwara, Jesse Costa, and Elizabeth Gillis. We had help from the Boston Globe's Shelley Murphy, Brendan McCarthy, John Plumaki, digital help from Heather Cyrus, Jason Tui, Devin Smith, and Ryan Huddle. Editing by Jessica Alpert. Our executive producer is Iris Adler. I'm senior producer and reporter Kelly Horan. And I'm senior reporter Jack Rodolico. Special thanks to artist Sophie Cal, who first used the title Last Seen at the Gardner Museum in 1991 and who granted us permission to use it to see a video recreation of the night of the robbery and view the 13 stolen pieces, go to our website, wbur.org slash last scene. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at last scene podcast, all one word. When she broke my heart, I was the If you've ever seen the West Side Story, you remember there's that Sergeant Krupke, dear kindly Sergeant Krupke, you gotta understand it's just just like grown up that gets us out of hand. Mothers were all junkies, our fathers were all drunks. Golly Moses, naturally we punks. And so they started singing that in the back of the paddy wagon all the way to the jailhouse down in the desk. And they just wouldn't shut up.